Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you are spiritually prepared to study the Word, to focus on the teaching of the Word and application in your life and in right relationship, fellowship with God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this study of the book of Acts, we pray that you will help us to think our way through this book, to understand what uh, your purposes are for revealing this information to us and why it's important for us to uh, assimilate the, uh, not only the historical aspects of the book of Acts, but, but the doctrines that are revealed within that framework that we might be able to uh, see how this fits within uh, the overall uh, pattern of Scripture and framework of doctrine in Scripture and that we may come to understand all that you have done for us through the work of Christ on the cross all that you have provided for us for our spiritual life, and that we might uh, be encouraged and strengthened by the way the Holy Spirit worked to expand the church in that first century. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever we come to a study of any book of the Bible, we ought to ask the question, why is this here? Why has God revealed this information to us? Why didn't he reveal other information to us? I mean, of all the things that happened uh, in the life of Christ, we're only told uh, a, a small amount in the Gospels. And at the end of um, you know, at the end of John, John says, if all the things that had had been done by Jesus were written down, they'd fill fill volumes and volumes and volumes of books. But all we have are the four Gospels, and that's it. And three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover about 90% of the same material. John's very different, but those three are called the synoptic gospels because they are synonymous. They are very close to one another. They, they elucidate basically the same kinds of situations. So we have all these things that happen in the book of Acts that covers the period from roughly AD 33 to 63 for a 30-year period. Just think of all the things that happened in the world all the things that happened to believers, all the things that happened to all of the uh, 12 disciples, only two apostles are really mentioned, are emphasized in the book of Acts. John is mentioned, but he doesn't speak. And we see the others on the scene in Acts 1, but they don't say anything. It is only Peter and Paul who carry the action in the book of Acts. Well, what about all of the other guys, the guys that went to Africa, the guys that went to India, to Persia, to north, into 
uh, Scythia and on up into what is today Ukraine and Russia. What about, what about them? Why didn't God tell us about what they did? What about the ones that went into, uh, a, a modern Iran, Afghanistan, maybe on into China? Who knows where they went? We have some idea, and I'm going to talk about that as part of the introduction. Those of you who are late can come, come on in. Don't worry back there. Just everybody's adjusting to the schedule, so just don't worry about interrupting anybody. I see everybody back there looking in the windows. Okay. Uh, so we, we ought to ask that question, why is it that God has decided to reveal this to us and not that? And that's an interesting question to think through, and we will as we go through the process, but that also leads us to ask the question, why has this information, why do we have this historical book of Acts revealed to us, this information? And so answering that question and some other questions is all part of what's usually covered under the, ca- the category of, of an introduction to a book. And in the last two lessons that we've had, since this is only the third lesson, I believe, um, the last two I gave an overview so we could just have a bird's-eye view of the action that takes place in, in the book of Acts. And the key verse, as I pointed out, as we have up on the, up on the slide here, is what Jesus' statement to the disciples in Acts 1.8, that you shall receive power when God the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's the structure of Acts. Just so you don't forget this, it's Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. If the first 12 chapters focus on Peter, the rest of the book focuses on Paul. Peter takes the church from Jerusalem to Antioch. Paul takes it from Antioch to Rome. That's the structure. In the section where Paul goes from Antioch to Rome, you have three missionary journeys, followed by a fourth journey, which isn't one that he's taken by his own volition because he's a prisoner, and he's taken to Rome. And as far as we know, that's his first Roman imprisonment. There are actually two, but the book of Acts stops while he is still under house arrest with a tremendous amount of freedom to move around Rome at the end of the book of Acts. We don't know what happened between the two imprisonments other than a few hints that are provided in the pastoral epistles, and we don't know what happened in his second imprisonment other than just a few things that come down, uh, handed down uh, via tradition. So, that covers the book of Acts, but now we need to get into, start getting into some specifics. And at this point, I already have about 13 broad points on introduction. There was a handout we had. There's two or three left up here on the table. Uh, and if anybody here doesn't have one, um, you can download them off of the website. And I'm expanding this. I'm probably going to have four or five more points that I'm developing by way of introduction just to help us uh, orient and structure uh, to uh, the book of Acts. Here's the chart outline I put up uh, where we're de- looking at it in terms of these three geographical divisions, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. You see uh, on that particular chart, all this material is being posted up on the, on the Internet. Now, first of all, we, I want to cover, uh, probably get through seven or eight tonight, Seven or eight points. First major point is the title. 
We know this book as the Acts of the Apostles, and sometimes it's simply referred to as Acts. But the tit- the book itself does not come with a title. He didn't write it and start off putting a title, centering it up on the uh, top of the parchment, and then beginning to write his book. He didn't give us a, a uh, uh, an introductory ex- or an executive summary at the beginning. The title itself actually gets added uh, to the manuscript somewhere in the second century. They had to call it something, and so the term that was used was the Acts of the Apostles. But that title actually is a misnomer and distorts the thrust of the book. It's not about the apostles. It ignores ten of them, if we want to count uh, Matthias. And the only ones that we focus on are Peter, then Paul. John's briefly mentioned. James is briefly briefly mentioned. Neither of them say anything. Um, uh, Peter dominates the first 12 chapters. Paul, the rest of the book. But the real actor, and somebody asked me about that phrase and said that, uh, is that really a good choice of word? And it is because it is the acts of the apostles, but really it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. The real actor, not in the sense of a Hollywood celebrity, but as the one who is performing the real background action. The actor in the book is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is giving birth to the church in the second chapter. He is the one who is expanding the church through the third, fourth, fifth chapters. It is God the Holy Spirit who is protecting the church from problems within, such as the uh, lying of Ananias and Sapphira. And it is the Holy Spirit who is protecting the church from enemies from without, such as those who want to arrest Peter and John and put them into prison and try to shut down this fledgling uh, body of Christ that is just beginning to explode on the scene. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is working behind the scenes to uh, protect and preserve and to uh, propagate the gospel. So it is God the Holy Spirit who is the main actor because he's the one who is uh, providing all of the action. So the book of Acts focuses on how God the Holy Spirit is empowering the early church, specifically through Peter. Then we see through some of the other leaders such as Stephen and Philip and then through the Apostle Paul to take the message of the risen Messiah, the risen Savior, and to proclaim the fact that he is resurrected, that he is the Messiah. He is God. He is the Lord. He has ascended to heaven, and that the kingdom, initially the message that Peter's proclaiming in Acts 2 and in Acts 3, is still an offer of the kingdom to the Jews. It's still an offer of the kingdom to Israel. And that, this raises a lot of questions for people. And one of the points that we will examine later on is understanding the fact that this is a transition book. Now, that's a, a sort of a hard concept for a lot of folks to get their hands around, but it is transitional. At the beginning of Acts, you're still operating under a mosaic dispensation where God the Holy Spirit is not in, indwelling baptizing or filling anyone in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is still 
functioning under the Old Testament economy. It's not until the Holy Spirit descends in the middle of Acts 2, or the beginning of Acts 2, that you have the birth of the church, and then you have a dispensational shift. But have you ever thought about it? How many of those people who came to Jerusalem? And Josephus tells us that there were a couple of hundred thousand uh, pilgrims who would come to Jerusalem for those annual feast days, Passover, Pentecost, and um, then uh, Sukkot in the fall. You would have 150,000, 200,000 uh, pilgrims come to Jerusalem. How many of those 200,000 Jews that came to Jerusalem were believers in an Old Testament sense? If you raise your hand because you know, we'll call somebody to come and take you away. Nobody knows. But we can. I think we can be somewhat confident that a certain percentage, I don't think it was a large percentage, I don't think it was 50%, but that's just a guess, that's just a gut feeling on my part. Uh, I don't think it was a huge number, but I think that they were, just as you have uh, uh, the old man, Simeon, and... and um, I uh, forget the woman now, uh, at the beginning of Luke, that come and when, when Anna, and when the uh, uh, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the uh, uh, temple for his dedication after eight days after he's born, they come and they recognize that he's the Messiah. God's answered their prayer. And, and uh, they're Old Testament saints who make a transition at that point by believing in the Messiah. That's the message from that point on, and why I really think that the life of Christ is, in some sense, a, a unique dispensation because the message isn't the Old Testament message to believe God's going to send a Savior. It's not the present message that believe Christ died on the cross for your sins. During that period of time, the message is to believe that this is the Messiah. And some did, and a lot didn't. And that's why the majority of the, of the Jews rejected that message. Their leadership rejected that message. And so there was no kingdom that, that came in. And so there was a new dispensation, a uh, new administration that came in that was not foreseen or foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. But you still have these Old Testament saints that are believers under an Old Testament sense that are going to transition into the, the new dispensation. And that's really interesting. There's a lot of what-if theology you can do there, but it's all speculation, and so you can start thinking about it and get wrapped around the axle and just forget about it because we don't know. Uh, but some, there were a lot of people who were believers already. They heard the gospel, and they transitioned into being a church-age believer. But a certain number of these people weren't believers in an Old Testament sense or a New Testament sense. And so they heard the, the gospel from Peter on uh, the day of Pentecost and then again in Acts chapter 3. And the message is still oriented, still oriented to Israel. Uh, repent and the times of refreshing will come. That's the same message, different, a little bit different terminology. It's the same message that John the Baptist had, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came, and initially his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent out the disciples to go to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and their message was repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And then they didn't. Then Jesus goes through a transition period at the end of his ministry where he's training the disciples for a time when he's not going to be there and for preparation for the church age. And then he instructs them about the kingdom. That's what we learn in the first 
um, four or five verses of, of Acts chapter 1. He ascends to heaven, and the first part of Acts, there's still this offer of the kingdom, a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel. That's hard for us to factor because, well, wait a minute, they already had rejected it. So we'll talk about that a little more. But what we're seeing here is that uh, there is this shift that has taken place, and it's based on this message that the risen Messiah has as, is there and that he's ascended to heaven and this is the beginning of the book and so it's the acts peter is the focal point who's the uh the apostle to the circumcision he's the apostle to israel the apostle to the jews and that's the focal point in those first 12 chapters but by then it's obvious that there's that, that the the beliefs are being uh hardened solidified and that those among Israel who are going to trust in the Messiah have done so, but that they, it's not the, the nation as itself, the leadership isn't turning to Jesus. And so you see that transition shift more and more to the Gentiles until you have the Apostle Paul being sent out by Acts chapter 13, taking the gospel message to the Gentiles on his three, uh, three missionary journeys. So this is the the focal point of the book of Acts. It's a transition section. So it is not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's not even the Acts of Peter and Paul. It's the Acts of God the Holy Spirit as he is giving birth to the church and expanding it to bring it to a position of uh, solid foundation in the first century. The earliest evidence that we have for the name Acts is found in a... um, in a document that was written uh, between 150 and 180 A.D. This is approximately 50, 60, 70 years after the death of the last apostle, the Apostle John, and it's written in a prologue to an anti-Marcionite document. Now, Marcion was one of these heretics that popped up in the middle of the first century. He was one of the, one of the most significant individuals in the second century. He roughly is uh, active between about 140, 160, 170 A.D., and he is influential on the negative side. Now, unless you sat in my history of doctrine class here two or three years ago, you never heard that name before, but Marcion was a heretic. And Marcion came along, and he was the first person to try to put together a collection of authoritative New Testament documents and he said that there were 11, 11 official New Testament books. Luke, which he edited a little bit. Acts, which he didn't edit, didn't like. Uh, he had, and he had 10 epistles from Rome. I mean, 10, 10 epistles from Paul. And that was it. And he felt like the God of the New Testament was not the same God as the Old Testament. And he was extremely anti-Semitic. And so he becomes a real problem. But as soon as somebody stood up and said, these are the only 11 books that we ought to have in our Bible, it forces everybody else to answer the question, okay, what books should we have in our Bible? So he's very important because of his heresy, he forces the church to define the canon. And so in one of the writings that was uh, written against him and to refute what he was uh, what he was saying, uh, it referred to the book of Acts as the book of Acts. 
and that's the first time we know of historically that it has, that's the first documentation we have of the name Acts of the Apostles. It probably existed before that, but we have no record of it. That's why it's, we call it the Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, or simply Acts. The second part of the, in the introduction, second point, is who wrote the book of Acts. If you read from Acts 1 to Acts 28, you will never find anything in the book that identifies specifically who the author is. That's similar to many other books of the, of the New Testament as well as, uh, as the Gospels. The author is never mentioned. But there are certain clues embedded within the book that give us a pretty good idea so we can be pretty confident as to who wrote this book. In the early church, the tradition was and the belief was that it was written by Luke. Some people think Luke was a Gentile. Some people think that Luke was a Jew that was just uh, Hellenized, which means he, he thought, wrote, talked. He was very accustomed to the Greek culture. Uh, he was close friends with the Apostle Paul. In the early church, one of the most significant church fathers was a man by named Irenaeus. Irenaeus be- later became the Bishop of Lyon in France, and he wrote a number of very important, very significant things in the, uh, in the uh, second century. His dates are from about 130 to 200. And he was the first person to recognize that there are some sections in the book, if you read through the book, where all of a sudden the narrative shifts from a third person, he, he, they, to we and us. And then the next chapter, it shifts back to he and they. And where did the we and us? Who? All the, so the we and the us, the first person sections, indicate that whoever was writing Whoever write, wrote the book of Acts was traveling with the Apostle Paul for some of that time. And then he would stay in a city, and the, Paul and his uh, friends and uh, uh, his helpers would go on to the next city. And then uh, later on, whoever the writer was, he would rejoin Paul. And so as you begin to examine uh, these particular passages, it became clear that the person who seemed to fit this the best was Luke. Now, we also have a clue about the writer of the, the, the uh, book of Acts because of the first couple of verses. And it connects it back to the Gospel of Luke. So I put the first four verses of Luke up here, and this is the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, where Luke writes to a, someone he knew. It was either a colleague or a friend, someone he had come to know by the name of Theophilus. And there's some debate as to whether Theophilus was, a, was an actual name or whether it was just a, a title or a pseudonym for someone. I tend to think it was his name. Um, and so Luke writes at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Now let me stop there. What does that imply? It implies that there are other people who've tried to write down information about Jesus and what the disciples did. But it, they haven't been really successful. It hasn't been accepted. So he says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning, from the beginning of time, 
No, from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry would fit the context. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word or hear the word logos, would, I think would be better translated the message, uh, delivered them to us. Seemed good. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect or a complete understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke it seems to have a very precise mind. He is, we think he, he was, we know from other references that he was a physician, and he gives us a little more accounts on healings and physical, physical things that a doctor would pay attention to than, um, uh, than, than others, other writers do. So he's going to write out an orderly account, and he researches what he's writing. And he's gone to people who were eyewitnesses of these events, and, and he's taken notes, and he's gotten their accounts, and then under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he writes the gospel, and he writes the book of Acts, and he puts down the things that he is guided to put down uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is really book one, and then at the beginning of Acts we read, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now that's the prologue for the book of Acts. So he's continuing to give Theophilus a detailed account of everything that had taken place. Now, as I've said before, when we're studying in the Old Testament passages, in these narrative or historical type books, this is not history or biography as we have come to see history or biography written in the 20th or 21st century. It is more of an editorialized biography or editorialized history written from a divine viewpoint so that we get a, a get God's interpretation, understand God's purpose uh, of these events. So it is clear that the writer of the book of Acts is the same writer as the gospel and that he is someone who was very close to the Apostle Paul and accompanied him on his second and third uh, missionary journeys. And so we have these we sections of Acts. For example, in Acts 16, 10 to 17, where he's in Philippi, uh, he's present there gets thrown in jail with the Apostle Paul. Acts 25 to 15, Acts 21, 1 to 18, 27, 1 to 29, and 28, 1 to 16. This is when he is, uh, in a, he is accompanying the Apostle, the Apostle Paul. Now, according to what we see in uh, Acts 16, Paul first met Luke in Troas. So here's a map. And this is going to become a very familiar geographical feature for you. This is the area of the ancient world referred to as Anatolia. Anatolia is a Greek word for the east. Now, of course, that's from the perspective of Greeks. Greeks are on the western side of the Aegean, so they're looking east, and what they saw in the land where the sun rose was the east was Anatolia. And so they referred to this section as Anatolia, Later, the Romans identify this section here as Asia. That's the Roman province of Asia, 
And so what happens is eventually this area becomes known as Asia Minor, and today we know of it as Turkey. And so the city of Troas is located here. This is where the Apostle Paul had a, um, had a vision of a Macedonian calling for him to come over uh, to Europe. This is all in Asia, right here where you have the split going through the Dardanelles here, and then the Bosphorus up here where Istanbul, modern Istanbul, ancient Byzantium, is located up here on the Bosphorus. This is the dividing line. Everything to the uh, west is Europe. Everything to the east is Asia. And so the Apostle Paul goes to, go to, went to Troas, has the vision uh, to go across to uh, Macedonia, and that is Troas is where he first met uh, met Luke. Now Luke had uh, there's speculation that Luke may have known Paul earlier, since one of the major medical schools in the ancient world was located right here in Tarsus, which is where Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, uh, was, was, was from. So if Luke had, was, was Jewish and came from a Jewish background, but he was attending medical school there, then he would, could possibly have known the Apostle Paul. But that, again, is, is a speculation, and there's uh, uncertainty there. Uh, Luke went with Paul from Troas over to uh, Macedonia, and if uh, uh, Philippi, or as they pronounce it, Philippi, he stayed for six years and pastored the church there before he rejoined uh, the Apostle Paul. We only have three references to Luke in the Scriptures. You would think that, with all we say about Luke, that we had a little more, but we don't. Colossians 4.14, at the end of Colossians, I remember Colossians was one of the four prison epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote from Rome while he was in, in prison. And the first was you have uh, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, and Philemon, and um, let me see, Colossians, Philemon, and I can't think of the fourth one right now. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, yeah, that's right, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and um, I don't know, I keep missing one. Anyway, Luke, at the end of Colossians 4.14, he just gives some greetings and says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So there we learn that Luke is a physician. In 2 Timothy 4.11, which is written much later, this is the last epistle that Paul writes, after his the interim between the first and second imprisonments, at the end of his second imprisonment, just before he dies, he says, only Luke is with me. And he asks Mark, uh, Timothy to bring uh, John Mark with him, for he's useful to me for ministry. And then in Philemon, he writes, uh, as do Mark, Aristarchus, is another greeting again, um, that these greet you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. So from these we see that Luke is with him uh, at, uh, when he writes Philemon and when he writes Colossians. Those are both written during the first imprisonment. So Luke is with him in Rome. We know of that uh, at the time he writes both of these uh, these epistles. So that's all we know really about Luke, except we know that some of the we sections within the book of Acts indicate that he was with Paul in when he went to Jerusalem 
at the end of the third missionary journey. He goes to Jerusalem. He shaves his head. He takes a uh, takes an oath. He's going to go bring a sacrifice to the um, to the uh, temple. Uh, he's arrested there because his presence causes such an uproar. And then he appeals to the fact that he is a Roman citizen, so he's taken to uh, Caesarea, which is the seat of Roman government at this time. And he's held as a prisoner in Caesarea for two years. Most people believe, most scholars believe, that it's during that two-year period that Luke has the freedom to travel around Judea and the Galilee and interview all of the eyewitnesses, Mary, the mother of uh, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary's still alive. Uh, many of the others are still alive. And so it's during this time that Luke interviews them to get their stories and to get their information. So he's very precise as a historian to get as many eyewitness accounts as he possibly can. And then he began to write the gospel, and he began to write the book of Acts. And then on his way to Rome, he would have uh, com- completed these... these uh, uh, manuscripts, these books, and finalized them probably during that time when Paul was still a prisoner in Rome because Acts ends, in Acts 28, Paul's still a prisoner in Rome. So we don't know what happens after that, which takes us to the next uh, section, the third point of introduction, which is the date. The date is probably sometime around 61, 62 uh, 63 A.D. It's before 64, we believe. Now, why do you say that? Well, in the Scriptures, historically, as, as both in the Gospel of Luke and in some of the earlier sections of Acts, Luke takes note of some significant historical events that take place. He take, writes about the death of Herod and some other things, and so he is not uh, he does not ignore events in secular history, but he makes reference to these things. Well, there are two major, major historical events that take place but at the, during this decade uh, of history. One is uh, the burning of Rome and the beginning of the Neronian persecution, which began in A.D. 64. And if Luke is in Rome and Paul is a prisoner in Rome still and this uh, Rome burns, there's a persecution initiated by Nero. We believe Luke would have mentioned it. Unfortunately, that's an argument from silence, so you can't, it's not definitive, but why does he mention the burning of Rome or the, persecu- the first major persecution against Christians? The second thing that occurs at the end of that decade is the Jewish revolt against Rome. This begins in 66 and ends in 70 when the armies of Rome under Titus uh, capture Jerusalem and destroy the temple. But there's no me- mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple uh, by Luke in uh, the book of Acts. So again, a major historical event is uh, virtually, uh, virtually igno- ignored. So there's no mention of the burning of Rome, no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. Furthermore, there's no mention of the death of Paul. Paul dies around 64 under as a result of a Neronian persecution, but there is no mention of his death uh, in, in the book of Acts. So it's written before Paul dies. So there's no mention of the destruction of Rome, the destruction of Jerusalem, the death of Paul. 
But there are also some positive things that we see as a result of the of what we read. There, there's a uh, the character of the subject matter is very early. We don't we have the mention in Acts chapter five of the choice of of some men who are going to help uh, with the administration of the uh, of, of the money and of the food that's been given to help the widows and the church. The apostles need to focus on the spiritual aspect, and so these. These men are chosen in order to help them. Now, they're not, they're not called deacons there. Every, especially if you're in a Baptist church, they always go to that to show, uh, deacons. They're never called deacons. The verb to minister is used, but they're not called deacons there. The noun is not used, but it's a prototype. It's a foreshadowing. But you don't really have in the book of Acts a formalized church structure yet. The closest you get is when Paul stops at Miletus on his way to Jerusalem, uh, he stops there. He can't make it to Ephesus. He stops on the coast, and the elders of the churches in uh, Ephesus come to meet with him. And he spends some time. They have a, a short time together, and he encourages them and warns them, strengthens them. It's a very important passage. But that's as close as we get to any formal structure. The early part of Acts, there's no formal structure in in, in the churches, and so it indicates a very early stage of the church where these kinds of things had not fully uh, fully developed yet. Also, we see an early nature of theology, in the, especially uh, in the first probably two-thirds of Acts. There's not a very detailed analysis of any kind of theological topic. So it's, it's um, you know, Paul is writing during that time, but it's interesting that the writer of Acts never mentions when Paul writes any of his epistles. He just mentions where he goes. We have to put things together from historical cir- circumstances. A third, are, are really, I, I mentioned three sort of negative, silent things, and then uh, four more positive things. The attitude of the Romans towards Christianity is positive throughout all of the book of Acts. They're not hostile to Christianity. The enemy that we see to Christianity in the book of Acts are the Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They will follow Paul from town to town. They will uh, stir up trouble and cause riots. But uh, it's not the Roman authorities that are uh, persecuting the Christians. From the Roman perspective, Christianity was still part of Judaism, and Judaism was a legitimate or legal religion, a recognized uh, religion by the government of Rome, and up until the burning of Rome and the persecution by, by Nero, the Romans basically looked at, at Christians as just a subset of Judaism. It was only after the burning of Rome and that first persecution of the Christians that Roman authorities started taking a hostile view of Christianity. But we don't see a host- that hostility in the book of Acts anywhere. So again, that argues for a very uh, early writing of the book. And then last uh, point I just alluded to a minute is the relationship of Acts to the Pauline epistles and that nothing is said of Paul's epistles, which again suggests an, a somewhat early date. So it is usually thought that um, by conservatives that Acts was written somewhere around 61 or 60, uh, 62, 61 or uh, late 61 or early 62 for the uh, writing of the book. Now the next point, the fourth point, is where we start getting into some of the more significant doctrinal aspects of the book, 
And this has to do with the role of, of uh, or the place of Acts in the Bible. Now, many of us have taken, have been in Bible studies for so long, and I do this too, we, where we drill down and we get so detailed in some of the minutia of the text that we lose sight of the forest. We're so, we get out our microscope and we take out every, every leaf and we study every cell structure and every leaf, but we don't take that much time to sort of back up and see how the leaf fits within the ecology of the whole forest, so to speak. And that's very important in Scripture. You have to do the detailed drill-down work to make sure you really understand what is going on in the big picture. But the doctrines are revealed not just in terms of minutia, but also in terms of the broad pattern. So we have to do both, and it's very important to do both. And in the big picture, we have to understand how, and this goes back to the question I raised at the very beginning, we have to understand how and why this book is in the canon. What is God's purpose in giving us this information? It's not just history. We're not just reading stories about people, uh, that ha- stories about great Christians 2,000 years ago. Well, that's great. It was fine for them. The Holy Spirit did things a little different then than he does now. What does that mean for me? Well, that causes you to think a little bit about it. I am convinced that the reason God revealed his word to us the way he did is because it forces us to sit and stop and think about it. I mean, if God had given it to us in a systematic theology, we'd pull the systematic theology off the shelf, we'd read it from cover to cover, close it, put it back on the shelf, and never think about it again. But every time you take out your Bible and read it, you ought to be scratching your head and going, hmm, I wonder what that means. Now, there's some people who say, well, I've just got to wait for the pastor to explain it to me. No, you don't. You'll never learn it that way. You need to be reading your Bible all the time. The questions that come to your mind that you write in the margin of your Bible are the questions that are going to motivate you so that when you come to Bible class and you're studying that, maybe it's some years after you've originally read it and written those questions down, that's going to motivate you to say, I want to know what this is all about. And that's why I want to learn this. Uh, if you're not reading it on your own, then when I talk about uh, Jephthah or Gideon or uh, Meher Shalal Hashbaz or Mephibosheth or any of those people, you're going to go, Who, what, who's he talking about? And you're going to be like most Americans who are dumber than dirt when it comes to religion. It's interesting. I meant to, I was going to do this today, but I didn't get around to finishing it, so I'll do it next week. But there was a Pew Research poll done on Americans' attitudes towards religion and what they understood about religion. Not just their own religion, but other religions. And it was interesting because it showed that atheists and Jewish agnostics knew more about other people's religion than uh, Protestants did and that evangelicals did. Shame, shame on people who claim to believe the Bible, and they don't know it. They're just ignorant of it. And we live in such a dumbed-down society today that we're more concerned to get more excited about a rapping Rick Warren than we do about somebody who wants to come and teach the Bible. That was a headline from last week's newspaper, if you've read the newspaper. Uh, so we get all focused on the wrong thing, and we don't know what the Bible teaches, and we don't know what uh, what we really believe. 
and we just want to rely on the pastor. And I think in doctrinal churches, there's an even a, a more dangerous passivity because we've let a, a, a soft mysticism creep into our understanding of the pastor that, oh, you've got to have the gift of pastor-teacher to understand the Bible. The gift of pastor-teacher isn't a Bible study gift, folks. The gift of pastor-teacher is a communication gift, not an understanding gift. It, it, the gift of pastor-teacher doesn't mean you can't understand the Bible unless you have the gift of pastor-teacher. The gift of pastor-teacher is given for, to someone who has a, who's gifted by God to communicate what it means. Not to understand what it means. Just because you have the, some people have told me, well, you got the gift of pastor, you can just open the Bible, read it, and start teaching. No, you can't. That's understanding. You've got to understand it before you can teach it. And that takes a lot of time and study, and everybody needs to do that, and everybody should be reading their Bible. Okay, now you've heard that rant. You need to be reading your Bible. I'm going to give you that quiz next week, so just be ready. And be here, don't run away. Now, in the book of Acts, we have a unique book, I think, in all of Scripture. It is unique because it is not loaded. You can't understand it if you don't have a doctrinal framework. But it is not loaded with doctrinal exposition like Romans or Hebrews or, or even Revelation. It is a narrative of how the church grew from 120 believers meeting in an upper room in the first chapter to Paul being in, uh, under house arrest in Rome at the end of the book. And, and the dynamics of that expansion and how God the Holy Spirit engineered that, how he overseed it, and how he protects, uh, protects the church. So the book of Acts describes the propagation and the progress and the process by which the gospel moves from being a local Jewish phenomenon to being a global phenomenon and having an impact that changes the world. But what's interesting, why didn't they go to why doesn't the book of Acts go to with Peter to Babylon? Why doesn't the book of Acts go to Africa? And we'll cover that as part of this introduction. That goes back to understanding Noah's prophecy of his three sons. If you don't understand Noah's prophecy to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, you don't understand why the book of Acts only goes to Europe. That's your hint. So the structure of the book is foreshadowed, as I said already, by Acts 1.8. And the story begins with the 12 disciples receiving their final instructions. It just summarized Jesus spends most of the time between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, or his ascension actually, about 30 days or so, 30 to 40 days with the disciples, before he ascends to heaven. He then ascends, but before he ascends, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit. And before Jesus leaves, he says in verse... um, He says in verse 4, Wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard from me. For John, meaning John the Baptist, truly baptized with water or by means of water, but you shall be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he tells them to wait. And then Acts 2 occurs, and we don't even see this phrase related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit for a number of chapters, and by then it's already happened. So Acts 2 is that 
part of that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which begins the church. And so this is how the church is, is uh, born. And then there's this rapid expansion in Acts 2 and 3. And I believe by the time you got to the end of Acts 3, there's probably as many as 20,000, maybe more, but at least I believe at least 20,000 converts to Christianity from just within Jerusalem. Some of them lived there. Some of them were visiting at the uh, High Holy Days, and so they leave and they take the gospel back uh, from wherever they came. They're the first missionaries, but we don't hear anything about them. The only missionary activity we hear about is Paul, but we know about the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. He would have taken the gospel back to Ethiopia with him, and others would have. So the gospel is already getting out and leaking out into the, king, in, into the uh, Roman Empire, but it's not official until uh, it is pulled together under apostolic authority. So the book of Acts is important for a, a understanding the unity of the body of Christ, the expansion of the infant church, and how God the Holy Spirit is engineering this. So I've got seven points to emphasize on why the book is, in, is important. And that will pretty much take us up to the end of our time, uh, end of our time tonight. First of all, it records the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. The Hebrew word was Shavuot, uh, Feast of Pentecost in A.D. 33, with the miraculous outpouring of God the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. That is the birth of the church. Something distinct happens there. And it's described by a broad phrase called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is just a general term that is borrowed from Joel chapter 2. You don't, you'll look in vain for the terms indwelling, filling, or baptism because outpouring covers it all in a non-technical term. Indwelling, filling, and baptizing are technical terms. That happens to the apostles and the others on the day of Pentecost. And we know that because later on it is said that these things happened, have already happened, and you, the only time they would have happened would have been back on, uh, on the day of Pentecost. So this is when the church begins. Now, sidebar, if you are a dispensationalist, and most of you are, if you are a dispensationalist, terms like indwelling, filling, baptism of the Holy Spirit are pretty familiar to you. You should have a pretty good understanding of what they mean. If you come out of a Presbyterian or Reformed or Calvinistic background that is not dispensational, they try to argue and they believe that all of these things happened from the time Adam got saved. In fact, I'm reading a doctoral dissertation from a man up at, uh, uh, he wrote his doctoral dissertation. Uh, this it was his first doctoral dissertation. He wrote it at Bob Jones University. And I'm trying to trace this down because I find it fascinating. All of the Reformed literature and theologians I've read over uh, years in studying this I have never heard anybody say this, but he says that in Reformed theology, indwelling of the Holy Spirit doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside the believer. It refers to the ministry of the Holy Spirit who preserves the regenerate nature after salvation. Now you should be looking at me going, huh? Because that's nonsense. What indwell doesn't indwell mean something like being inside? And yet, he, he argues that the reformers have never understood it that way. They put it from Adam. And I'm, so I'm trying to track that down. But what I do know is that if you talk to many theologians and ask them what are the two most significant theological works done on the Holy Spirit, 
The two books that they will almost always mention are the uh, uh, 17th century book written by a theologian named John Owens. John Owens was Oliver Cromwell's chief of staff, and he was one of the greatest Puritan theologians, English Puritan theologians of the uh, early 17th century. And he's got, I've got a massive set at home, 17 volumes of his works. And I think it's volume six is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then there's another work by Abraham Kuyper, who is another brilliant man. I mean, you can't deny the brilliance of these people. Abraham Kuyper was probably, in the end of the 19th century, was probably the greatest Presbyterian Calvinist theologian in the Dutch Reformed Church. He was also became the Prime Minister of Holland. And they had a golden age because of the influence of Christianity in Holland at the end of the 19th century. But when they were thrown out of office because of a spiritual rejection, look at where Holland is today, a hundred years later. I mean, this is the moral cesspool of Europe. Because they threw out the Bible, literally voted it out uh, a little over a hundred years ago. But Kuyper writes a 600-page work on the work of the Holy Spirit. In neither of these books do they even mention the baptism, the indwelling, or the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Reformed theology, the Holy Spirit is irrelevant to spiritual life. It's a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality. you just got to go do the commands of the New Testament. And as Kuyper says, you're still under the law. But you can do it. You're doing it out of gratitude, not to gain salvation, but out of gratitude now. So uh, that gets into their whole view of the spiritual life. And all of this just seems to run counter to what we read in the book of Acts. Acts is about God, the Holy Spirit's work through the disciples. The second reason the book is important is it describes how the infant church expands from Jerusalem to the halls of power in Rome. We see opposition, and we see how the how the apostles handled the opposition how they handled it when the government said, don't do this anymore. And they said, "We're going to, very politely, very nicely, very respectfully, we have to obey God rather than men. How they handled being thrown in prison, how they handled all these um, situations uh, involving uh, persecution, and how God matured the church through this period of time. third thing about the book of Acts is it enables us to understand the transition from the age of Israel to the age of the church, the transition from law to grace, from Jerusalem to Rome, from being a small, unknown Jewish sect in Jerusalem to a worldwide, international, transformational uh, religion. I'm using that in the best sense of the word, as Christianity completely separates from Judaism. Fourth, we see that as the church develops, we understand how God the Holy Spirit provided for its leadership, administration, and organization. They don't have much at the beginning. It's transitional. You don't have uh, an organization of pastors and deacons or elders or bishops or any of those terms at the beginning. Those come much later. In fact, Paul doesn't really specify a formal administrative structure until he writes First Timothy, which is written during his first imprisonment, which is either right at the end of the book, book of Acts or afterward. And so when we read, I believe, when we read books like James, which are written very early, which use the word elders, that's not a technical term. That's just talking about mature believers. 
And I think we see that in a couple of other places as well. So there's a transition there from a formal, informal structure to a formal structure. Uh, fifth, we see that Acts lays the foundation for the church age concept of missions. One thing that ought to come, two things ought to be really pounded into us as we study Acts. One is the importance of prayer. The other is the importance of missions and the importance of evangelism and the importance of taking the God, because we're still, Acts is the beginning and it has, doesn't stop until the rapture. Acts is only the first 28 chapters and we're in cha- chapter like, I don't know, 175,000 by now in terms of the expansion of the church. It just the only part that got written down and canonized was the first 28 chapters. Sixth reason that Acts is important is because without the historical structure provided by Acts, we would not understand the context for the Pauline epistles, and a number of things that Paul says in the epistles would not really have a lot of meaning for us if we didn't understand the historical context in which they were written. So Acts gives us the historical context to understand who, what, and why Paul is writing, saying the things he's saying and what he's doing in the epistles. And then the seventh reason is that Acts provides the only historical sequel to the events of the Gospels. We would be just lost. Jesus dies, rises. We wouldn't know much. We wouldn't even know about the ascension if we didn't have the book of Acts. Now, one other thing about um, Acts as a its place in the Bible is that Luke, different people come up with different ideas as to why, Paul, why Luke wrote it. One thing that is clear, it may not be the only reason or the whole reason, but Luke wrote it as an apologia. An apologia is a legal defense. It's not an apology. Gee, I'm sorry Jesus rose and ascended to heaven and the church got started. No, that's not what an apologia. Apologia is. It is a legal defense. When you see a defense attorney stand up in a courtroom and argue his case for why this person is not guilty, that is an apologia. That is a legal defense. It is a rationally structured argument to prove a case. And that is how uh, the book of Acts is laid out. It is a logically, rationally structured argument for showing that What Jesus started at the resurrection and ascension is carried out by God the Holy Spirit starting in Acts 2 to a maturation level, a maturity point in Acts chapter 28. And Luke just kind of ticks it off and sets it up, and he uses the most interesting people to make his case. For example, in about Acts um, uh, 4, Gamaliel, who is the most well-known Pharisee and rabbi at that time, uh, is is being pressured by uh, the Jews in Jerusalem to do something. Stop it. He said, look, we've seen these other guys pop up who claim to be messiahs. That didn't go anywhere. If God's behind this, you can't stop it. If God's not behind it, hmm, it's going to go away. See, Luke has used his words to, to set forth his basic argument, is nobody could stop it. Look, this exploded. There, have been, there were all kinds of people who claimed to be messiahs, but it was only the messiah who rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, only the messiah who died on the cross, who met all the credentials of the Old Testament 
And when he ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to replace him, this began Christianity, and it couldn't be stopped by anybody. This proves the case. So it is written as a as a legal defense, and one of the first things he says uh, to indicate this is in Acts 1-3, he writes, uh, re- referring to Jesus at the resurrection, he says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now, if Jesus thought it was necessary to establish his credentials through many infallible proofs, then why is it that we get the idea that we don't really need to know these things? And when we have a discussion with somebody, we don't have to validate what we're saying about Jesus. You realize that most Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other cultists know more about what you're going to say to them when they talk to you than you will ever know about their religion. That's terrible. I'm going to give you this Pew Research Quiz next week. It's pretty basic. Just see how you do, so that'll be That'll be interesting. But we'll come back next time and continue. We just got through the first four points of the introduction, and I have at least ten more to go. Uh, each one gets, we'll get into a little more theological things and doctrinal things as we go along. But this is, uh, it's really important, I think, to understand some of these broader framework issues before we start getting into Acts. Otherwise, you'll just get lost in some of the things that are going on, especially because of the transition. Uh, thing that's going on. Okay, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that we might be encouraged by these things as we see how you have brought about such a tremendous uh, work in history with the birth of the church and its uh, progression and expansion down through the last uh, 20 centuries. And that today we are the heirs of what began on the day of Pentecost. Father, we pray that you challenge us with all the truths that we study in your word in the book of Acts. In Christ's name, amen.